A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. In the story of Jonah, when the mariners realize that their stowaway is the reason their ship is in danger, they decide to toss him overboard. But first they pray, asking two things from God. Don't let us drown, and don't make us guilty for doing the thing that will keep us from drowning. And then they add, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. In the biblical story, it's a given that God does whatever he pleases. His will controls the arc of the whole story, with human beings fighting against it at every turn. Instead of submitting to it, we resist. If we just had a way of knowing for sure that things would turn out in our favor, then we would have no problem accepting God's will. But that's absurd. You can't commit a crime with the assurance that you are going to be absolved from the guilt. It's simply not our call. At least the mariners realize that before they toss Jonah overboard. Whatever becomes of this, God will have the final say. In a similar way, we can't expect God to be merciful to us and then complain when he decides to extend the same mercy to someone else. Jonah understood that. It's the reason he was fleeing in the first place. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah had no problem receiving mercy from God, but he got angry when that same mercy was directed elsewhere. Anytime we resist the will of God, we become a hindrance, a Satan to others around us. Others who, just like us, will receive mercy from that same God if it pleases him. In Scripture, we human beings cannot corner God. We cannot control him, and we cannot manipulate him. He simply does what he does. Our choice is to submit or try to get out of the way. But if we're a hindrance, we may find ourselves crying out to God from the belly of Sheol or groping around in a dark mist, waiting for someone to lead us by the hand. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. Joining me today on the podcast is Noel Neff with a reading from Acts. What are we to do with this oddly worded phrasing and the strange, even unsettling narrative we find here? Welcome, Noel. Thank you, Father. I'm always happy to have the opportunity to hear scripture and be taught by scripture with you on this podcast. The passage I have for us today is from the book of Acts. For our Orthodox listeners, this passage shows up in the church's lectionary during the fifth week of Pascha. Let's take a listen to Acts chapter 12, verses 25 through chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, 
the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Father, I chose this passage for today because when I was hearing it, a few things stood out to me. I know when we are hearing scripture functionally, every word matters. There are no extraneous words, and if something seems odd or out of place, the scriptural authors are sure to have put it there for a reason. The first thing that caught my attention is verse 25 of chapter 12. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. To me, for some reason, the John mentioned here seems to have been almost snuck into the text for quiet emphasis by the author. It seems like it would have been a space saver to just say that Barnabas, Saul, and John returned to Jerusalem. But the author is specifically noting that Barnabas and Saul took him along with them, and he is identified by both of his names. This begs the question, why should John, whose surname is Mark, matter to us in the context of this passage? Just as a small side note for our listeners, I should probably add some clarification to the way this text is being translated. In our text, the Orthodox Study Bible, the translators chose the word surname following the KJV to explain the relationship between John's two names, making it sound like Mark is his family name and we are being told his first and last name. According to the original Greek, we could probably more accurately say John, the one having been called Mark, Mark being his alternative name. Strong's concordance confirms this under the note for the name Mark, that he was also known by his Hebrew name John. This leads one to believe that the early Jewish hearer would have recognized him by his Hebrew name, and those outside of the Jewish circles would have known him by Mark. We see something similar happen later in the passage with Saul, who is now being identified for the first time, I might add, in Acts, is the one who is also called Paul. 
Saul being the Jewish name of the Apostle Paul. Why again is the scriptural author drawing our attention to the dual names of both of these characters? And furthermore, what does any of this have to do with the unsettling character of the sorcerer and false prophet, Bar-Jesus, who I might also add is identified by two names, his other name being Elimus. Can you shed any light on some of these details in the passage, Father? And how are we supposed to hear this passage as being salvific for us? Thank you, Noel. Yes, there's quite a bit to unpack here. As you mentioned, the use of two names for many of the characters is intriguing, as is the way John seems to be mentioned, both times he is mentioned, as an add-on. And what to make of this sorcerer called Bar-Jesus? To better understand this part of Acts, let's revisit the background, which seems to be Paul's letter to the Galatians. Father Paul Tarazi, in his New Testament introduction, volume 2, shows how the diptych of Luke-Acts draws largely from Galatians in both its content and terminology. Luke basically presents in narrative form Paul's teaching in the letter to the Galatians. So let's review a bit. In that letter, Paul recounts the opposition of, as he calls them, the circumcision party to the proclamation of the one true gospel. In the second chapter of Galatians, we hear about a meeting in Jerusalem in which the three pillars of that church, Peter, James, and John, gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that they should preach the gospel to the Gentiles and they, the pillars, to the circumcised. But shortly after, that agreed-upon arrangement turned sour. Let's hear Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Although they had agreed on full equality between Jews and non-Jews, Peter's behavior at Antioch, specifically his unwillingness to sit at table with Gentiles, was a de facto betrayal of the gospel, and Paul calls him out. I withstood him to his face, as he says. In Acts chapter 13, it's a very similar scenario. Jewish opposition to the preaching of the gospel to a non-Jew that is depicted. And here, the opposition comes by way of a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet. Just as Paul says in Galatians that he withstood Peter, it is the Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus who withstood Saul, sharing the gospel with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The mention of Sergius Paulus also coincides, as you mentioned, with Saul being called Paul for the first time. The name Paul means little one or diminished, and Sergius in Latin means servant. He's also described as an intelligent man, but that statement is not meant to impress the hearer. When this word translated intelligent, senito, appears elsewhere in the New Testament, it carries the meaning of the kind of wisdom that runs contrary 
to that of the gospel. I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and prudent Sinanton, and revealed them to babes, for such was your gracious will. That's Luke 10, verse 21. And again we hear, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. Sinesen ton sineto, in Greek, I will frustrate. That's 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19. So in both the meaning of his name and the description of him as intelligent, in quotes, the way it's used, we are to hear him as a prime candidate to receive and be transformed by the message of the gospel. The opposition is coming from Bar-Jesus, described here as a Jew and a false prophet. Also, after telling us once that he is a sorcerer, the author identifies him by another name, Elimus, and then tells us that this is translated as sorcerer. Note the repetition for emphasis. The name Bar-Jesus uses the Hebrew-Aramaic prefix bar, which means son of, with the Greek name Jesus. In Semitic use, that expression son of often refers to one who is like another, of the same kind, cut from the same cloth. So we have the son of, one who is like Jesus, the one who saves. We have to hear this ironically, because unlike Jesus the Christ, who submits fully to the will of God his Father, this character is using sorcery. It is significant that he is identified as a Jew, as one who opposes the preaching of the gospel to a Roman proconsul. It's the same scenario from Galatians 2 playing out again. In Galatians, the accusation was that after accepting the truth of the one gospel for both Jews and non-Jews, the Jerusalemite leadership betrayed that understanding and not only reverted back to Judaism, but influenced others to do the same. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy in Galatians 2 verse 13. Thus Paul's characterization of Peter as one who compels Gentiles to live as Jews here in Acts, with the character Bar-Jesus representing the chief opponent of Paul's preaching, it is as if Luke is suggesting that reverting back to Judaism after having accepted the gospel is tantamount to sorcery, something Paul hints at with his phraseology in Galatians. Listen to the following. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. That's chapter 3, verse 1. A little later, in chapter 4, he includes himself, making no distinction between Jew and Gentile in describing the state of one prior to having received the gospel, and uses terminology that suggests paganism. In verse 3, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And then in verse 9, but now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Furthermore, Paul's response to the resistance of the false prophet is to make him blind. 
In the Gospel of John, the evangelist quotes Isaiah to speak of those Jews who refused to receive the gospel, saying, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. In a literary sense, that one detail of Paul causing Bar-Jesus to be blind seals the deal that this entire scenario is depicting again the opposition by the Jewish leaders to the mission to the Gentiles. So, Noel, one way to hear the function of the two names for several of the characters, one in Hebrew and one in Greek or Latin, is that it underscores the tension between the true gospel, which makes no distinction between Jew and non-Jew, and the perversion of that gospel, which seeks to revert to a Judaism that excludes Gentiles. Remember, in this part of Acts, Paul is carrying the gospel of the crucified Messiah all the way to Rome. He will continue moving forward, but not without obstacles. You noted how John, who is also called Mark, seems to be included in the mission not as a full member with Paul and Barnabas, but as an add-on. In both mentions, he is presented that way. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark, in 1225. And again we hear, they also had John as their assistant, in 135. The wording of both of these points to his later abandoning Paul and Barnabas in the effort, something we will hear in verse 13. Before Saul and Barnabas arrive in Antioch, it says that John departed from them and returned to Jerusalem. We can take that to mean that he reneged on the true gospel and reverted back to Judaism as upheld by the circumcision party. A couple of literary clues support that understanding. We start out in verse 1 of chapter 13, hearing of five prophets at the church in Antioch. The five could be a reference to the books of the Pentateuch and thus represent the Judaism of Jerusalem. Significantly, however, we hear that the Holy Spirit separates two from the five. Barnabas is at the front of the list and Saul at the end. So five become two for the missionary work of bringing the gospel to the nations. The text seems to be de-emphasizing the importance of Jerusalem in favor of the mission to the Gentiles, which mission includes Barnabas and Saul, and only temporarily John, who had been identified earlier as the brother of James, the chief representative of the church in Jerusalem, which opposed, in practice, table fellowship between Jews and non-Jews, and thus betrayed the one true gospel. Another literary device may be at work here. This passage from Acts takes place while Paul and Barnabas are on the way to a city called Antioch, which again brings us back to the place of the conflict described in Galatians. A bit later in this chapter of Acts, when Paul is preaching in Antioch, he uses the name Jesus without appending any other title. That stands out for us because in almost every other instance in his letters, when Paul preaches, he uses the phrase Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ. So to the ear, when we hear mention of a sorcerer called Bar-Jesus, who is a false prophet, a bogus savior, 
we are set up to hear even sharper the contrast between him and the one Paul preaches later in the same chapter, the authentic Savior, whom he identifies only by the name Jesus. Surely all of this dense wordplay and interconnectedness between different parts of Scripture can be intriguing. But ultimately, we have to ask, as you do, what is the point of it? How are we supposed to hear it as salvific? To address that, we need to once again revisit the conflict scenario in Galatians. Why was Peter's withdrawal from eating with Gentiles seen as a betrayal of the gospel? Well, the oneness of God and of his Christ mitigates for the oneness of the gospel. That gospel offers salvation as a grace from God through his Christ via his crucifixion and resurrection. Scripture affirms that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that God shows no partiality. There can only be one community of believers gathered around his crucified Messiah. Thus, table fellowship, the sharing of a meal with someone, was a concrete demonstration of the oneness of the community. Different dietary requirements separated Jewish believers from non-Jewish, so the sharing of a common meal at one table became the test, so to speak, of whether or not the community was really one. That's why Peter's acceptance of God's giving Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and then reneging on that acceptance through his actions was seen as a betrayal of the gospel. So then we want to hear the literary devices in Acts with the dual names as reinforcing the oneness of the gospel, because God is one and Christ is one. He shows no preferential treatment to anyone, be they Jews or non-Jews. As we hear in chapter 11 of Romans, God has committed them all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Thank you for this explanation, Father. It strikes me in all of this how easy it is to find the character of Bar-Jesus unsettling, perhaps because of how scripture emphasizes that he is a sorcerer, one whose aim is to distort the message of the gospel and keep it from reaching the Gentiles. But what I think should unsettle us even more is how Peter, John, and even Barnabas were carried away with those who were attempting to distort the gospel from Jerusalem. Through our human lens, we often fall prey to holding up the biblical characters as heroes for the faith, but there are no human heroes in the text. The only hero is God. Scripture identifies some characters by their small or diminished state. Sergius Paulus, which in Latin, as you said, means servant, was a prime candidate for hearing the teaching. Saul, who is also called Paul, which means little one or diminished, was filled with the Holy Spirit and was able to teach it to him, and he believed. Other characters, like the sorcerer Bar-Jesus, are struck down into smallness by the teaching, being blinded and rendered into a beggarly state. I hope we modern-day hearers take note of this, lest we find ourselves wandering through a dark mist, seeking someone to lead us by the hand. Perhaps this is how the gospel makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. All will be made small by the scriptural God, by acceptance and mercy, or by judgment. Amen. Thank you, Noel. 
This concludes episode 15 of A Light to the Nations. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to meeting again with you soon.